I'm Dale McGowan, and this is Human Story. Brad Braxton is a black Christian. Anthony Pinn is a black secular humanist. For centuries, their belief traditions have existed in bitter opposition, including within the black community. But Brad and Tony knew and respected each other enough to seek common ground. So they made the decision to talk with, listen to, and learn from one another. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, threats to our democracy, and national protests for racial justice, Brad and Tony exchanged a thousand words a week, each to the other, exploring the philosophical and theological questions of what it means to be human. The result was a book titled A Masterclass on Being Human. So I'm a black secular humanist, and it would be dishonest for me to argue that black Christianity has done nothing of merit, right? That it has simply been passive, go along, get along, right? That denies figures like Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, Mariah Stewart, right? Anna J. Cooper, right? Folks who claimed a religious connection, but who did something in the world that was robust and meaningful, right? So I got to acknowledge that. But on the other hand, recognize folks like Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin, right? And Alice Walker, for whom traditional modes of theism did not serve as a proper grounding for their work in the world, right? That there's complexity here. And my hope in part is that folks who pay attention to this conversation will recognize and operate based upon this complexity and move away from these easy depictions of theist and and humanist that's based strictly on stereotype. Here's a place where accuracy and depth coming from you really blessed my soul. I don't know that I have ever heard readings of scripture as poignant as I have from you. So as you know, in one part of our book, we are really thinking through the Hebrew Bible book of Job. Oh, yeah. And right, the kind of pinpoint accuracy and rugged honesty that you brought to the analysis of that biblical text opened up so much for me. So here I am trained as a scholar of Jewish and Christian scripture, and I am amazed at the degree to which you, through your interpretation of the scripture as a secular humanist, are opening me up to be more honest and more critical about the downsides, or as I often like to say, you know, the Bible misbehaves sometimes. Mm-hmm. It is not always the good book. And there's some really problematic aspects in these kind of mythic tales, like the tale of this so-called righteous man who suffers. So I think our readers will really find it very interesting the way we move between a conversation about Tupac Shakur to a conversation yeah. about the book of Job. Yeah, and you, you know, and for me, I think... Humanists, free thinkers, skeptics, you you pick the label. We often do ourselves a disservice by assuming that that particular text has nothing to offer us. But my argument would be there are marginalized, often despised lessons within the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Testament that are humanistic in nature. So we go to the book of Job. Forget Job. Think about Job's wife. This is the woman who says, 
Ma'am, why don't you just curse God and die? And for me, she is the only person in that story who appreciates the integrity of human life, right? Who understands and appreciates the trauma of horizontal relationships and dealings. And, and, and I would argue her stance is similar to what you get with Camus' celebration of Sisyphus, right? Dude is just rolling that rock up the hill, persistent, right? There is something about the integrity of human life. Both Sisyphus and Job's wife recognize that in certain circumstances, the win is simply lucidity, greater awareness of our circumstances, and a a determination not to be determined by those. So in some situations, our struggle against injustice might simply entail how we end, right? And it seems to me this is what Job's wife is getting at, that there are certain circumstances in which human agency, the integrity of human life is spoken to in graphic ways simply by our demand to determine how life ends. I ain't mad at you because of that reading. And I think I said as much in the book. However, what I think our audience would find very interesting is there is some creative tension between our readings Mm -hmm. of Joe, because Mm -hmm. for me, part of the conversation was about opening up on an almost literary analysis way the various parts of the book of Job, right? So that there is this kind of prosaic fable, a righteous man suffers and a righteous man gets the stuff back at the end. But that's actually quite, quite unsatisfying. And then inside of that, and there are all kinds of historical critical things we can get into on another occasion, there is the poetry of Job. And I know you and I seem to disagree about how much Job is actually protesting with God. Mm -hmm. I think Job is maybe protesting a lot more than you think. But again, the very notion that these texts as they come to us from any religious, spiritual, or ethical tradition are not to just be taken wholesale, but it is in the critical engagement with them where we think our way through them and recognize that they don't have the last word. Maybe it is our human circumstance that must be brought to bear in conversation with these traditions that actually moves us to the last word or at least the word we need for the suffering and the hell that we are going through right now. I mean, this is good. Let's stick with this for a moment because I think this conversation kind of points out to listeners how we have this conversation and maintain our distinction, right? So, So for me, I look at what Job does and I'm mindful of the fact that to the degree Job raises questions, it's only after the prompting of his wife. And my concern with Job is, Job approaches God mindful of and determined by vertical relationships, right? The human to God, God to the human. But this story has already been skewed. It begins with some questionable behavior on the part of those who condition this vertical relationship, right? That God seems to be driven by ego and is putting Job at risk for the sake of ego. But with Job's wife, what you get is a privileging of the horizontal relationships, right? The human to human relationships, relationships that are 
ever mindful of human pain, misery, and suffering, and what we do within the context of our humanness to address those. Yes. Here's what I would say back to that. I'm wondering if the presentation of a text like Job is itself both a serious and, and I mean playful, and I don't mean this in any light, trite way because we're talking about human suffering, but playful in the sense of bring your full sense to this and be willing to transgress traditional ways of thinking. So I wonder if the book of Job is itself at least two things, an invitation to critique perhaps this capricious God, right? A God to your point around ego in some kind of contestation with some satanic figure. And this is this is something that needs further investigation. And it's in the canon maybe to call forth to say not every version of God that we find in the scriptures is a healthy one and one that should be taken whole scale. But here's the other point about Job, and this is about the horizontal piece. For me, what is extremely important about Job's kind of his protestation is the way in which the platitudes of his friends, and I'm not sure how friendly his friends were, where Job basically says, is there no end to your windy words? So you have characters in the story who are bringing traditional religious dogma and Job is at least heroic enough, notwithstanding some of your critique, to say at some point human suffering demands more than trite religious, moral, ethical platitudes. So both a critique perhaps of God by its very presence in the canon and a mindfulness of the importance of critiquing religious platitudes in the face of absurd suffering. Yeah, see, you give Job more credit than, than I can manage to give him. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, as, as we were talking, writing that chapter, and, and even now, what kind of circles in my head is that line from Eber Camus, absurdity is king, but love saves us from it. Right? So there are ways in which what we get with that humanists ought to appreciate this, what we get and Job's encounter with the divine is the absurd, right? Because Camus says the absurd is a relationship to the universe that we demand of it answers and it meets us with silence. All that hubbub God provides is a non-answer. It's the equivalent of silence based in light of what Job is asking, right? So what you get there is a sense of the absurdity and what you get with Job's wife is the only marker of love. Job's friends don't love him. These divine beings are playing with him. Where's the love? But it's Job's wife who is touched and motivated by his pain. With her, you get love. Absurdity is king, but love saves us from it. That's Job's wife. God's response is, I'm going to give you more stuff. Come on now. <laughs> I, again, am absolutely 
loving the fact that a secular humanist brother beloved is just working this text. I'm not fighting with you about Job's wife. Here's what I would say, though. And this actually, you will recall, is the kind of tack that I tried to take us on. And when readers engage this, I hope they'll see it wasn't a sleight of hand excursus. When we are talking about that in the book, one of my responses is the very notion of Job not only having both prose and poetry shows us that the Bible is a process that's written over long periods of time, but that Job itself is situated in a library. So there's a way of thinking about how Job works if it's a singular text. What I wanted to insert into the argument was what the framers of the canon, and it's problematic and longstanding, right, of a process of canonization. That's its own, right? We know that's four or five podcasts itself, right, how the Bible got put together. But part of what I keep wanting to insert, whether I'm talking to fellow Christians or whether I'm talking to secular humanists, is how do we engage a text like the Hebrew Bible, right, and New Testament, with an understanding that it is a library and that the very library nature of it suggests that there is an appreciation for different versions. There are different versions of God in this text. One version in Job, problematic. Other versions held up against it. And that it's in that contestation and clash of different perspectives that we might get some fragment of the truth. So trying to defend versions of God in the book of Job alone, I'm not sure how well one can do that. Right. But that might be part of what the texts themselves are trying to do to tease out from us a willingness to say one, first of all, that there are arguments in the Bible. And then number two, therefore, we have moral warrant to argue with the Bible. See, and this is one of the points where we would differ because For me, the God we encounter in this story of Job does not change. That this is a God who, in the Hebrew Bible, heaps suffering on folks. And then in the Christian Testament, sanctifies and makes sacred that suffering. I can't get with that. But I, I, uh, I just what you're talking about, particularly with the move to the Christian Testament, even, even the notion of... This particular version of Job, of God in Job, but aren't there other versions of God up against this version, even in the Hebrew Bible? Well, because I don't want to slip into a kind of Martian dualism, right, where, you know, the God of the Hebrew Bible is one and the God. I, no, aren't there other versions of, of God that I'm, that I'm hard more, pressed to find in the Hebrew Bible a God who doesn't encounter humans through misery, pain and suffering, typically pedagogical in nature, right? That we are supposed to learn from this stuff or we have misbehaved and we got to get it right. And this pain is to make us, to help us get it right. And then you get with Jesus in the New Testament, a rendering of this pain and suffering as redemptive. There's no way out of it. This is for me a problem, but I want to point to something else that I can hear some folks in the secular community saying, well, You know, this is just ridiculous. I'm not messing with this religious language and vocabulary. This is just taint. It's a problem. But it seems to me 
that secular humanists ought to be able to appreciate a sense of wonder and awe. And there may still be work that some of this borrowed language has the capacity to do for us. James Weldon Johnson, a secular thinker, understood this. James Baldwin leaves the church but recognizes wonder and awe that requires a certain type of vocabulary and grammar without the spiritual commitment entangled with it, right? So there are ways in which wonder and awe still need to be communicated. And there may be ways in which this language helps with this. But it seems to me, and then I'm going to shut up, that what becomes required for progressive Christians, progressive Christians and secular humanists who are progressive, right, who are operating based upon a kind of realized humanism, what becomes important is this. This is the question. What of our language, our vocabulary, and grammar are we willing to give up in order to produce and work towards human well-being? What are we willing to give up in how we think and what we do to promote the well-being of life writ large? The move of relinquishment that you articulate there, I fully embrace. And yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> and yet, you know, so I would, I don't want to mount up like a Baptist preacher because then you'll, you know, that's when the stereotypes, right? But I, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm unwilling to turn the Hebrew Bible piece loose yet because in so many texts in that part of the canon and in the Christian part of the canon, <clears throat> what, when you started talking about love a moment ago, yeah. I just started thinking about wonderful text about God's loving kindness, right? Morning by morning, brand new mercies we see. This marvelous concept in the Hebrew Bible of hesed, God's loving kindness. And that concept of hesed has propped up many an ailing black soul along many a Sunday morning, a Thursday night at a prayer meeting. So part of what I want to say is, yeah, the relinquishment move, I'm, I'm down with that. And yet in any classic moral text, there are tropes and terms and artifacts that are still there that have meaning, notwithstanding all of the problems. Right? It's wheat and it's shaft. So we got to do some winnowing. But I would not want to say that the only depiction of God that you have lifted up as seriously problematic in the book of Job is the only depiction of God. And that marvelous notion that God's mercy in Hebrew imagery is akin to being nurtured in a mother's womb. And I hear you. I hear you, bro. I hear you. And it would be historically dishonest for me to say that there aren't ways in which an embrace of the biblical text help black folks survive. Some black folks survive, yeah? That is a given. But here's the question for me. The God you're describing, is that the God the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites encountered? Right? So it seems to me, if you are of a particular grouping, yeah, then that may be the case. But if you're not, if you're a Moabite, a Canaanite, a Hittite, that may not be your experience. And I think 
part of the frustration for me is people of color. And, I, you know, I don't really like that phrase. My, my preference is people of a despised color. Yes. Right. People of a despised color have read this text. Those who are Christian, for example, have read this text and have read themselves the Israelites. But isn't it just as reasonable to suggest that based upon the history of people of a despised color, they are more easily identified as contemporary Moabites and Canaanites, not the ones God favors. One of my mentors, and you know him well, Dr. William R. Jones wrote this book in 73, Is God a White Racist? Raising this question that is it reasonable for black Christians to argue God is on their side in light of the historical evidence? Isn't it just as reasonable to suggest that God is a white racist who doesn't like black people very much? As you know, in various parts of the book, there are many times when I'm going to go with you all the way, all the way to the water on what you said. Oh, we're going to cut it off right there. Yeah. Oh, no, no. And, and, and yet, that's going to be my phrase for you as we talk about this book. And yet, again, recalling various parts of the book, this is where, for me, it's important for black theist, black secular humanist to realize that alongside a towering figure like, like Jones is this marvelous tradition of radical black biblical scholarship. So the person who comes to my mind right now is Randy Bailey. I'll never forget right when Randy Bailey, one of the great black Hebrew Bible scholars mm -hmm. of our time, I was in awe when I heard Randy offer the reading to say yeah, it's really problematic for black people to be jumping up and down when we read the narratives about God smiting, right, to use that old King James language, all of these Egyptians. Why, why are black folks getting excited about God killing Africans? Right? Yeah. And I remember right, Randy in his marvelous way raising these critiques, which is a way of saying I ceded to you. Tony, there are some gods in the Bible that we should run like I was going to say hell from. But I, I guess it should be the secular humanist cussing and not the progressive <laughs> Christian. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm my, my ordination certificate is going sideways <laughs> on the wall now. There's some gods we should run like hell from. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other gods presented in that text. And as you were talking, for me, what is important is honoring the biblical witness as I do, not as some unmediated or some, something that's just kind of given to us, unmediated, it just comes from the lips of God, but as a historical record of many, many communities wrestling with this, sometimes getting it marvelously wrong, sometimes getting it woefully, woefully right, marvelously right, and sometimes woefully wrong. And divining that text, not discarding it, divining it, right? Seeing if we can 
push out of it language, grammar to use your term, images that set us up for the living of our days here and now. But notice the move that I'm making. I've said many times in our conversations that for me, part of this conversation is realizing that the Bible is depending on us as much as I think Christians often think we are depending on it, that through our wrestling with it, it might offer us a kind of moral witness that moves us in the right direction. But that doesn't mean it's the only text, which is where I know you come in, because every time I want yeah. might want to cite the Apostle Paul, I know your move. You're going to give me Richard Wright. You know and I'm not right. mad at that. <laughs> so give me Richard Wright. But also, I just want to say back to the members of your community, let's not take the Apostle Paul completely off the table either. There's something there. I'm literally leading an institution right now and seeing that Paul's words in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the spirit. My first staff meeting at Chicago Theological Seminary was based upon Paul's fruit of the spirit. I literally saw what could happen in a corporate educational institution when I literally in that first meeting, Tony, asked key staff persons on our team to introduce themselves according to one of the fruit of the spirit. I've seen what happens in in meetings when people take a text like that, that has life in it, not death. And vice presidents are standing up in a room and saying, I am love. I'm joy. I'm peace. I'm patience. So, yeah, you can have that problematic picture of Job. And maybe we need to excise that from the Bible. And I'm probably going to have to hang out with you as a secular humanist because I know all all the Christians right now get ready to rise up against me and make sure I never preach again. I'm I'm willing to see some of that, but some of that I'm not willing to see just as I am eager for you to do a fresh exegesis, as you will always do on what Richard Wright might have to offer us. Man, Paul, I don't know about Paul, but anyway, I want to raise something here. Right. So it seems what what's undergirding this conversation is an assumption that folks ought to do something with the lessons they gather from these texts. And, and I think this is, uh, this, is, this is a point concerning which we disagree. That for me, what folks ought to do with this text is safeguarded by the Constitution, right? Folks, they get to practice what they want to practice, right? You want to be a Christian? I will struggle to maintain your ability to be a Christian. That is to say, for me, what folks ought to do with this text is limited to what takes place within context of individual life and communities of the life like-minded, but not with respect to the public, not with respect to larger policy issues, that we need a different vocabulary and grammar. We need a different source of moral and ethical insight with respect to public life. You are right. This is a place where we disagree. And in this regard, and I think there's there's nuance about this disagreement that we certainly tease out in the book. And let's see if we can't tease it out with the living voice here. So the notion of certain kind of secular democratic text and ideals serving as guardrails for a kind of healthy construction of public life 
in a community, a country, globally. I'm with you all the way there. What I'm cautious about is the degree to which a robust construction of democracy would seek to limit the bringing of any number of resources into the messy public sphere as part of what it means to be a democratic society. So there are certain things that we must rule out as perhaps out of bounds. We're not trying to set up a theocracy or a godless state. We're trying to set up a context where people can bring whatever resources upon which their lives are predicated into this conversation. And that strikes me as what robust democracy means. So some of you are wanting to move this simply to the individualized state seems to me, and again, I may have misheard you in the book, I may be mishearing you now, seems to me at one and the same time a hope for a robust democracy and then making the guardrail so tight that it limits what actually is best about democracy. And some of it is its messiness. True democracy has a messiness to it. I, I think you are misunderstanding. So, so this would be my argument that Brother Braxton is a Christian who finds useful moral and ethical lessons within the Bible. Those lessons inform how he moves through the world, how he understands issues and how he addresses them. And so that material is being brought into public because it informs and influences you. But I'm opposed to the idea of any range of sacred, sacred texts determining how everybody ought to think about issues, how everybody ought to communicate those issues. That what my argument would be within the context of public life, we need to be working towards a new vocabulary and grammar that explores and explains a rather complex and messy understanding of life. I'm not simply saying bump the Bible, bring in the secular doc. I'm saying based upon what we say we want, we need a new vocabulary and grammar that captures the nature of life within the context of what we call the United States. Recognizing that democracy has been an idea. It has not been a practice, right? So we need something that really allows us to push in a more sustainable way towards democracy as a practice, as opposed to an idea. So I'm as not just trying to sneak in secular humanist stuff and rule out the theistic stuff. I'm saying we need something new. We need a new way I, of communicating this. And I would, I would argue that I'm, I'm not necessarily saying or was not trying to say that that there was subterfuge on your part. What, what I'm trying to suggest is that there's more dynamism at work in terms of the individual parts of our lives and then these spaces and places and positions that we occupy. So that if I am, as you say, right, Brother Braxton gets these, you know, inspiration from these texts. And I also hold public positions and I'm in spaces and clubs and societies. And so, and so therefore, that which is individually important to me then is emitted into a larger social sphere. And what I'm arguing is it's the emitting of this. It's not the curtailing. It's the ability to emit some of these traditions that are in our hearts and individualized spaces that then creates the space for the genuine contestation, 
Right. So yeah. I think you and I have always agreed that there, there there's something beautiful about a contestation yeah. that is not violent. Right. Yeah. A contestation yeah. that sharpens and refines. So I'm just wanting to make sure that we actually don't limit, perhaps, the contestation that I know is very important yeah. to you by making sure. Right. That these things are kept in yeah. in these airtight and, spaces. And, and here's my concern. And I'll say this in terms of the Bible and then I'll say it. Also in terms of, say, the Constitution, that these are materials that assume an insider and an outsider group. And it operate, they both operate based upon the preservation and the enhancement of that insider group. Now, we have worked over the course of centuries with the Constitution to broaden who is part of that insider group. But I don't know that that sort of posture towards life and the kind of vocabulary and grammar that posture towards life enables really gets us where we want to go. You had a last word, Brad. Here's what I would say. If anyone has been edified and a new sense of curiosity has come into your soul because you have overheard this conversation, we invite you to continue to follow what Tony and I are doing and perhaps get the book because it's in this kind of chopping up It's in this kind of earnest, serious conversation that never runs away from disagreement that we might be on our way to being better humans. Ding, ding. (laughs) School is in session. Good talk, Brad. Really enjoyed it. Man, this is wonderful. Thanks. Brad Braxton is president and professor of public theology at Chicago Theological Seminary and founding senior pastor of the Open Church of Maryland. Anthony Pinn is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a professor of religious studies at Rice University. Their book, A Master Class on Being Human, was released in July 2023. That was episode 15 of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular perspective, one story at a time. Human Story is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media. And subscribe to the Human Story podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Human Story. Human Story.